Hello. Welcome to Industry Insights with KPMG Economics, Healthcare and Life Sciences Edition. Industry Insights with KPMG Economics is a series featuring Chief Economist Diane Swank, who will be exchanging ideas with the national sector leaders here at KPMG. In this edition, Diane and sector head Ash Shahada discuss the change taking place in the healthcare sector from the impact of technology and innovation, labor shortages, and improving patient outcomes. So let's begin. Hi, Ash. It's great to be here with you. You know, we've been talking a lot about everything, how broad the healthcare space is and life science space that you cover. Can you really give me a sort of lay of the land, starting out with the payer provider end of things in terms of, I know how diverse the space is, but what are the issues you're seeing on the ground in terms of what they're dealing with right now? Well, thanks, Diane. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And as you know, you know, the organizations and across healthcare and also the payer space have been very, very active, obviously throughout the pandemic, but more importantly, even now. Uh, there's been a lot of activity, as you know, around provider consolidation. Uh, there's been continued interest in acquiring provider practices. Private equity, of course, was very, very busy up until the beginning of this year. So clearly we're seeing that pause. But I think there's just, uh, you know, the main theme right now is cost, 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 labor, labor, labor. And, you know, Diane, we've met with the CFOs across the industry, everybody's looking for every possible solution in that area. You know, on the cost side, it's one thing that struck me is before we hit the pandemic, I know the average ages of nurses were about 50, which was higher than the average age of the overall population. And we saw the people call it the great resignation, which is my least favorite word, because it really didn't describe what was happening. But clearly people got burned out in the healthcare industry. And we saw an increase in both retirements, but also a lack of supply of people coming into the space. And we're just seeing now in terms of hiring some catch up to what was an extraordinary shortfall, especially in the wake of the initial pandemic and everything from nursing home care and the really the healthcare providers that were doing the most hands-on in the industry. And I think, you know, one of the things that I keep worrying about and thinking about is as we're seeing the costs um, come in and there's still shortages of really patient care and stepping up. We know it from our own cues. I know it from getting into the doctor's office. It's hard to do right now because they're slammed. They're really backlogged that the cost pressures are building. This is something the Fed is also concerned about. But Walk me through, you talked about the earlier M&A activity that was in the industry, the consolidation. What do you see going forward in terms of, especially the rural versus urban hospital space, the profit versus nonprofit? I'm really worried from an, an equity um, standpoint as well, what this means for the overall labor force and the health of the labor force more broadly. When you hit healthcare, you affect the overall economy. I think, Diane, you're spot on. And I think those concerns are exactly where the, the heads of the CFOs and the CEOs and boards are right now. You know, as we move to this kind of massive consolidation and even compression of resources, uh, organizations have had to really do three things. Number one, obviously, uh, reduce costs across the board, which they've been busy at doing. Uh, number two is they've been consolidating resources for greater efficiency, which includes potentially impacting the viability of the uh, rural healthcare community. And then the third one, we've been, you know, kind of experiencing this phase of what I call hyper-automation. People are looking for every possible way to go beyond the traditional electronic health record modernization and moving to, you know, economies and capabilities that will help us permanently reduce costs. Because I think we all agree right now that, you know, with, with some of the big wage uh, increases we've seen in healthcare, we've seen 
bargaining settlements on both East Coast, West Coast, and the Central Region, we likely will see this continuity of high wage pressure for years to come. Yeah, the kind of wage pressures you were talking about are pretty stunning as well. And they're ones that certainly catch the attention of the Federal Reserve. Now that we don't want people to earn higher wages, we want them to do it in a productive way. They can sustain the high wage gains without inflation eroding it. And a big part of inflation, you and I both go back enough to remember a big part of inflation in the 90s was the healthcare sector. And, you know, I am worried about that becoming a push on inflation going forward. It is already in some of the healthcare measures. But before we get to that, you know, this issue of AI and the incredible role it can play, but also how does it delineate? Because we've got, you know, sort of this concept of work from anywhere. Well, that doesn't really work if you don't have access to healthcare in rural areas, nor broadband, which is really critical to many of the sort of labor-saving technologies that can also enhance the quality of the care we get and really bridge skills gaps, which from an economic standpoint, the tire meets the road in terms of productivity growth and really delivering to the bottom line. When you marry that technology with people, it's not just replacing labor with capital, which I think so many people see out there. Can you get into you know what kinds of trade-offs are firms thinking about when they're looking at that kind of stuff? You know, The big issue with healthcare, as we know, isn't necessarily just the efficiency factor. It's we've been running several years of of uh, really labor gaps, and not only on the clinical workforce, it's also the staff support. And I think the idea that we can somehow, you know, move that workforce to the home doesn't really kind of pervasively impact the healthcare delivery system. Uh, Obviously, back office functions, clearly there's, you know, impact there and opportunity. Uh, But on the clinical roles, it really is going to be about uh, getting efficiency to help kind of close the gap of that labor gap. And it's one that we've been, you know, writing about, we've been warning about, we've been studying it globally even. And uh, I think what ended up happening with the pandemic, it kind of, you know, brought all of our fears to fruition. And, and now we kind of have to settle in and, and work through it on top of, uh, you know, a very uh, complex economic environment. So the navigation of this is going to be a very skillful. But I do think, you know, leaders are definitely changing the way they're thinking about these approaches. And I think the more important part around healthcare is can we even learn from this consumer-centric environment? You've always taught us a lot about looking at the different signals in the economy. And the consumer signals are definitely starting to permeate healthcare. In terms of how you've got this squeeze on margins and you've got, you know, them wanting to, you know, obviously they want to increase the quality of care. They also want to reduce costs. They're dealing with the labor situation that is not going to go away. Even if we have a recession, this is not a sector that, except for the pandemic, ironically enough, hit the healthcare sector. It was one of the first times we ever saw the healthcare sector hit, and people didn't understand why that happened. And I always try to remind people that people stopped going to their doctors in February of 2020, and we lost 1.7 million jobs before we ever entered a recession, and a lot of it was in healthcare. People didn't want to go to their dentist for obvious reasons because of their fear of contagion. So. Now we are in the place where we're back trying to catch up to what was already a very tight labor market, shortages of nurses, shortages all the way down and up and down the skills strata. What are your clients doing right now in terms of what can they afford to adapt and where do they want to place their bets on these new technologies? I think it's a it's a great question. I, I think we're seeing kind of three areas of innovation. One is obviously around the delivery system. So being able to kind of refocus not only within the inpatient hospital, focusing on outpatient facilities, and even looking at more and new and varied services to the home. 
So I think that's been really important to kind of look at varying the type and, and intensity of services across the continuum. The second area is also getting into some of the newer areas and using newer technologies to enter them at scale, things like mental health services. Also, you know, long-term care has become a, a big popular kind of post-pandemic boom, both with private equity and being able to use primary care to help improve the efficiency of the discharge process is really, really important. And I think the third one, which we're, we're likely going to see is, you know, a lot more kind of creative financing. You know, as we look at modernizing our buildings and our infrastructure, you know, it, does it need to be kind of all in, in one container right now? Does the health system have to shoulder it and burden it? And, and I think you're going to start to see new entrants enter into the space. So, you know, even though we have a lot of headwinds in front of us, people are coming to the table, with very creative solutions. Technology partners are coming to the table with infrastructure and new innovations and I think the willingness for the traditional healthcare ecosystem to go beyond its four walls to seek these solutions is, is really now born out of necessity. You know, it's interesting you bring it up and we'll get into some of the other areas I know you're covering. But one of the things that struck me, I was talking to someone recently who was talking about, well, I'm thinking about where to retire. And one of the things that was number one on their list, am I going to be close to a good healthcare provider? And all the services that requires, because they were looking at more rural areas. And that was one of the things that they saw as a negative, And they were worried about that sort of access. And when you're talking about, although you can't do, obviously, in-person healthcare, you know, from home, the fact that we've got a lot of employers looking out there, this is another issue they have to consider is how much is it going to cost for them to insure their workers, but also can their workers ensure that they get access to healthcare in all the places that they're located. And that's something that I think about in terms of the health of the economy and the health of the labor market as well. I'm going to go a little further with you now in terms of your work in life sciences, because, you know, that's where sort of the magic um, frontier is in some ways. And I get excited about it as a cancer survivor myself, having 11 surgeries during the pandemic. It really is just amazing to me to see what's happening out there. But there also, it's not free. And, you know, what is the momentum? And, you know, this is an area where startups in the overall economy have played an extraordinary role in supporting and making for the resilience of employment. And now we're seeing some changes in that funding, and that could diminish the role that they play. It's something that I'm thinking about quite a bit. I'm excited about the dynamism we've seen, but I'd like to get your perspective on what you're seeing in life sciences. And I know you cover a lot of different sectors in that, but you know, starting out in you know, the overall life sciences, and then we'll drill down a little more. Yeah, I know. Clearly, I, you know, and I'll focus kind of on those main themes. But, you know, overall, we are still seeing an amazing kind of push forward in the biotech space, you know, with uh, the dawn of kind of precision medicine and, you know, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, very, very close to cancer care. Obviously, you know, oncology is a major, uh, you know, ability, major abilities right now to really go after some of these, you know, very long and, and you know, very complex diseases. I do think we're also seeing kind of a nice push for, uh, you know, kind of post-pandemic with the use of technologies like messenger RNA. Uh, we've seen some very great advances where they're taking those combined therapies with more traditional drugs and finding some very, very innovative impacts. So I think with all that complication and, and, and difficulty and also innovation also comes kind of the complexity of this whole uh, biotech model. It's still very much, you know, academic based. It's still very much uh, housed in some of the bigger kind of life sciences organizations. And I think in order for this thing to kind of unleash its capability across the healthcare system, I always kind of call it, we have to rewire the system. 
And the system has to work very collaboratively with labs and pharmacies and distribution networks. Insurance has to look at these solutions much differently than it does. And then you brought up the issue of health equity. We have to really start to take on the topic of health equity much more broadly. And I think life sciences is gearing up for that as well as we get into more of the transparency initiatives. So I think what, what comes with is great opportunity also, we're seeing much more complexity uh, than, than we have with, you know, traditional drug launches. You know, it's interesting you bring this up because it's something that you had also touched on when we talked before, and that is the issue of private sector getting very involved in some of the solutions that are already out there and wanting to brand it and wanting to be a part of it, which would be one way of spreading it more to the masses. What do you see going on with that? I think you had mentioned one with you know diabetes and dealing with diabetes and the advances that we're making there and what's happening. Talk about that a little bit in terms of how that's shifting the entire sort of rewiring it, as you put it, the whole network. Because is I think back on, you know, when I see these things on 60 Minutes and when I watch what's going on in the healthcare space and even talking to my doctors, I'm amazed at what they're doing at the big hospitals and at the big research clinics and even MIT, like you said, in academics with AI and they're sort of monitoring, you know, the ability to monitor a preemie baby and not touch it until it needs to be intervened upon because that can compromise their lifespan, that you can improve these qualities, but it being done in a very academic sort of not necessarily with the same attention to profits and costs as you would have elsewhere in the economy. How do you see that shifting right now? I think it's a great one. And just in the diabetes space, you know, there's some tremendous blockbuster drugs right now that are, you know, making their way through the system. And, and we've obviously learned that those drugs now also have a very, you know, amazing reciprocal effect which is amazing weight loss. And, and they're kind of sweeping the nation right now. And, and, and people are kind of going through quite a bit around, you know, what the cost of it is, what's the best delivery model? Can we make it available? There's obviously quite a bit of supply chain shortages because when you get these kind of dramatic, uh, you know, market shaping drugs, we also start to see supply shortages. But what is interesting is when you think about the future, you know, when you think about organizations that, for example, have been in weight loss and diet for years, being able to combine the ability to deliver that, you know, amazing weight loss therapy, reduce the effect of diabetes, and maybe even do it through telemedicine and mail order pharmacy. You know, that's when we're starting to see that kind of combination of capabilities, public and private. And I think quickly, we're going to get into a reimbursement model that will, you know, start to support this kind of innovation as well. So I think, you know, we have a lot of questions about it. And I always bring this one forward. Um, and there's going to be similar examples with Alzheimer's, drug discovery, and others. But these are the things that will start to move our whole system forward if we can start to create that chasm between public-private partnerships and then the broader distribution of our healthcare economy. That brings up an issue that I think um, you know often gets lost in translation that I'm sure you're aware of and you, and you have to deal with too, is as we start to think of these bigger solutions that are national-based solutions, right? There's a lot of individual regulations at the state and local level that we have to deal with, even with nurse press practitioners. I mean, it's, you know, gotten to be so that each state has their own sort of verification. And the problem gets to be, how do you deal with, during the pandemic, there was mental health allowed across state borders, for instance, using Zoom and Teams and things like that, and the ways that we could be much more efficient. And they had to do a lot of things, I hope, open the door to more of a national platform and more national standards. But where are we as far as the state side of individual? We're seeing a lot of very different views, both in the political arena, but also, you know, being able to get these things for firms to really want to join in and make it a private-public partnership. You don't want individual state 
regulations at every individual state, right? Exactly. Well, and your point is so well taken. There's quite a bit of difference, even the way we cover some of the health benefits. So Medicaid expansion alone, you know, has, you know, massive pervasive effects around coverage, around the ability and eligibility factors, and then more importantly, how hospitals and health systems get reimbursed for that population. So, you know, we are still seeing quite a bit of variability. You know, there's almost a dozen states still that haven't kind of expanded Medicaid to, to the degree that others have. So that's one area that we're still seeing movement. The other area is also just to your point about kind of regulatory and certification environment. Uh, you know, there's still quite a bit of shortage of these professionals and the way the state kind of bodies also govern and, and manage the input of those, uh, you know, eligible recipients is really, really important. We are seeing some great creativity, but again, there's really not kind of a centralization of an effort. And, and we do believe that the healthcare economy is very much driven by the local decisions around staffing and growth. And even, you know, you can look at something like for hospitals, the ability of the way they handle certificates of need and the way they authorize the construction of hospitals and health systems. So all of these very nuanced solutions continue to drive, you know, the ups and downs of the healthcare economy. Well, on that note, um, I think I have to let us stop and be an optimistic note for a change. So many of what I do, um, I, you know, there, there's a lot of who talk about dismal economics and the dismal science and being able to talk to you makes it a much less dismal thing to do. So that's a good thing. But you've actually given me some hope here. So thank you, Ash. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Diane. You just heard KPMG's healthcare and life sciences sector leader, Ash Shahada, and chief economist, Diane Swank. Subscribe to hear Diane's conversations with our other sector leaders from healthcare and life sciences, technology, and consumer and retail.